must not go back to Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. That help will always be given at Hogwarts to those who ask for it. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Hey everyone, welcome to Hogwarts, a podcast. Hey everyone, I'm your host Dan, and we're back again with Chapter 16, The Chamber of Secrets. If that sounds familiar, it's the name of the book that we're reading. I am back with Julie. Uh, Hi guys! So, um, the... I think you noted the first thing that you loved about this chapter. (laughs) Well, so the way that the chapter opens up is, you know, Professor McGonagall is telling the class that, well, it's time for us to prepare for exams. And all of the students are like, are you kidding me? We're still having exams? And it's like your friends and classmates are literally petrified and they still haven't figured out how to close the chamber, let alone stop it from ever opening again. And you guys are like, what do you mean there's there's exams? Like, yeah, they kept the school open. What do you think was going to happen? That they just wanted to keep you there as, like, bait while they tried to figure right. out how to close the chamber? Nope, running this thing as normally as possible. Yeah. Uh, as normal as it possibly can be, I guess. Uh, but the Mandrakes are ready. Um, after their partying in the greenhouse and them maturing and moving into each other's pots. It's a big step. It's a big step. That's a big step in their growth and development and their maturity. Yeah. Um, so now they're ready to get chopped up in students. So <laughs> very aggressive. So those are ready. So those are getting prepared. Uh, I'm assuming it's a combination of Sprout, Pomfrey, and Snape that gets this ready. That's what. Well, I would think that it's mainly Sprout who has to prep the mandrakes, prep them for their execution, right? (laughs) And I would think it would mainly be her and Snape, and that Pomfrey would just be apply it, applying it. I don't think that I've ever thought of Madame Pomfrey as creating the potions that cure the students, because when you think about in you know, the muggle world, if you're a doctor, you're not making, you know, the medications, the medications, you're just administering them and knowing which one is going to solve which problems. Right. That's fair. So, and maybe, you know, her expertise, her expertise comes in with how do we fix nearly headless Nick? Mm-hmm. Like, how does that happen? Uh, maybe that's where Spray her... Spray it on him with a Mr. Bottle or... <laughs> Very high tech. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but essentially, probably. I mean, they moved him with a fan, Dan. <laughs> that is accurate. <laughs> that did happen. Uh, which is just hilarious. I am picturing in my head, like, literal Lily McGonagall holding a fan. <laughs> <laughs> like... Or Filch, because Filch would do it. Anyway, um, but speaking of McGonagall, her uh, she catches Harry and Ron trying to break off and, and at least uh, get to the bottom of this, get back to Moaning Myrtle's um, bathroom once they figure out that, oh, it's Myrtle has something to do with this. Mm-hmm. McGonagall catches them. Uh, Harry does have a very quick thought, 
as to how to stroke of genius yep, to explain <laughs> his way out of this. Uh, that they wanted to go see Hermione, and um, McGonagall, she has her moments in the first two books. It's not often, but she has her her tender moments where she actually shows a more vulnerable side of her, uh, which always catches the students off guard. They're like never ever expecting it. Well, I think it's because she's always so strict with them Mm -hmm. that when the only side of her that they ever see is you know do your schoolwork follow the rules don't lose points for gryffindor right keep moving when your quidditch matches (laughs) when you only see either her strict side or her competitive side when it comes to winning the house cup or winning the quidditch cup yeah like i think seeing her kind of break that outer shell is going to be a little bit of a shell shock um to most of the students because again like they're preteens so they're not thinking about like oh she's probably just not showing us that she has you know caring loving emotions and she's i think one of the other stark moments about it is she doesn't care if you are a gryffindor she'll Mm -hmm. still take points from you she'll still put you in detention she'll still harm her own self-interest yeah. just to make a point. Mm-hmm. And when she always breaks and has that moment of vulnerability, it's always with students. It's always something student-related that makes her go, like, a, a little bit softer side. Yeah, and I think the thing that struck me about this particular break is it's kind of the first time that we've seen any of the professor's kind of realize what this is doing to the students. Because I feel like up until this point, everyone, whether it be Dumbledore, Snape, Lockhart, like Sprout, it's always been the concern of what this is doing to Hogwarts, that Hogwarts might close, that Hogwarts is being attacked. But Mm -hmm. I think when McGonagall kind of breaks a little, it's her also showing like, that she realizes how this is affecting each of these students. Like this isn't just a Hogwarts student that ended up in the hospital wing. It is a friend, it's somebody's daughter. And I think that's her realizing that it's not just hurting the reputation of Hogwarts, it's also hurting other students, not just from a fear perspective, but I mean, like if your friend is in a hospital bed somewhere like that, that messes with you. And I think some, especially now, because she's now in the role of headmistress, uh, taking over for uh, suspended Dumbledore, mm-hmm. I guess they've officially called it. So right now she is caught up with, okay, I got to keep this running. I got to keep, you know, everything going smoothly. I got to keep, keep Hogwarts the, open, keep Hogwarts open. And I have to do my best with that. And then here she's reminded of the humanity of it, of mm-hmm. like. why you're keeping Hogwarts open. It's not just because it's this institution, but it's so that you can, you know, enrich the minds of the future generations and that you can help mold them into hopefully good people, with the exception of Slytherin. Ouch. There are good (laughs) Slytherins. There's not a witch or wizard who went bad who wasn't in Slytherin. I'm sure there were. And I look, I'm from Ravenclaw. I'm sure there's some Ravenclaws (laughs) that went a little sideways. (laughs) That's fine. There's some Gryffindors that probably went a little sideways. I, spoilers, but yes. Yes. All right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, spoilers to some Slytherins that uh, turned out good. Anyway, um, so they 
swindle <laughs> McGonagall into giving them permission to go and visit Hermione. And uh, now here's the thing. We see when someone is petrified, them brought in, because Harry was in the hospital wing when uh, when yeah. Creevy was brought in. And they like searched over him with like a fine tooth. They looked in his camera. They did, they did all this stuff. I know Dumbledore is not there. But you're telling me, like, and maybe McGonagall is too close to it. Maybe she's like, this is one of my students. I like her because she's one of the better students. Maybe she's too close to the situation. Pomfrey or something like that. You're telling me they didn't, like, look closely enough to find a piece of paper in her hand? (laughs) Again, are we really surprised? (laughs) Students kind of get attacked on the regular here at Hogwarts. Are we really surprised that they overlooked a piece of paper? Or... Did they think that it was just completely insignificant? Because with Colin, when they looked at the camera, the whole point of looking at the camera was maybe he got a picture of his attacker. So Well, they asked about the mirror. Like there was a hand mirror with Hermione and Penelope. Yeah. And that was on the floor. But like, I mean, if you see a piece of paper, I I mean, I don't know. They were near the library. Yeah. So I think that the natural assumption would be that, you know, it's a piece of homework or it's a book slip or I don't know but I don't think that the I think the mirror took so much focus because it's such an odd thing to have found by them Mm. versus a piece of paper especially someone with Hermione's reputation of always being in the library always being the top like student of course she's going to have some type of book or notebook paper or something I guess but still come on Come they on. look over a lot at Hogwarts. <laughs> they do. And, and maybe part of it is this is so many now that they have started to kind of get a little jaded to it mm-hmm. of like, okay, we're not going to look into necessarily the, the specifics of the, the petrified person. We just got to figure out another way of yeah. finding a solution here. Um, but anyway, obviously, Harry and Ron <laughs> find this, this information and it is some information. Yeah. It's a lot. Um, they figure out that it is a basilisk that Hermione has deemed to be the monster based on her research. And according to this, it makes a whole lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, lifespan of hundreds of years, uh, which is very vague, but hundreds of years. Uh, enemy of spiders. Well, that makes sense based on our last chapter. Yep. Uh, stare can kill. And then Harry goes on this little uh, kind of thought <laughs> train of just like, this makes sense. You got... Uh, the Mrs. Norris seeing the reflection in the water. You got Justin JFF looking through the ghost. Um, so that wasn't a clear shot. Colin through the camera. Colin through the camera, and and now them through the mirror. So um, he's like, oh, that makes sense. And then this uh, random bit, and I forgot to look this up. I don't know if there's some mythology of like snakes and roosters having like a whole big thing, but dies by crowing of a rooster. Which is also fascinating when you think about, in that same excerpt, it says how the basilisks are born, hatched, whatever you want to call it. And Mm -hmm. it's from a chicken egg. So it's interesting that the crowing of a rooster can kill it, but it came from a chicken. It's a very weird... It's it's a very weird life and death cycle. (laughs) They don't have many lives and deaths, though. <laughs> oh, <true. laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's a very interesting creature. 
and uh, yeah, so they kind of find out all of this information, and they're like, shoot, we need to tell somebody about this, which is a brilliant thought. That's a Hermione thought right there. Uh, yep. Like, hey, we should <laughs> we should go and tell For somebody about it. once they that. didn't go and try to figure it out by themselves. Yes. Way to go, guys. Amen. Finally. <laughs> they have some clarity. And then that leads to some non-clarity. Uh, so they try to go find McGonagall. And they feel like they should just uh, go to the teacher's lounge. Surely someone will be there that they can tell. And then uh, I think someone actually comes into the teacher's lounge and they go hide in a closet or something like that. They hide in a closet. Instead of waiting to tell all of the professors what they know, they hide in a closet to get more information to go and once again attempt something stupid. Brilliant. Um, (laughs) I do like the the teacher's reactions uh, to the news that McGonagall has to share, which... The news is obviously that Ginny has Ginny Weasley has been taken down into the chamber, and the reactions are really interesting. I think you have Sprout, Flitwick, kind of react with what you think they would react with, like shock, sadness, mm-hmm. um, and then the the reaction that I found interesting was Snape's. Yes, where you know we get this view of Snape through Harry's eyes of cold, condescending, hates Gryffindors, hates students in general. <laughs> Hates everything, <laughs> you know, very cold, reserved, hands-off kind of person. Here, he grips the chair tightly and, and asks a question like, hey, how did this happen? Something, yeah. something well, like Well, and lines. I just find it so interesting that you see Snape, who has, like, zero connection to any students, let alone Gryffindors, let alone first-year Gryffindors. And so, like, seeing this one moment of humanity like he I actually very, cares yes he does really actually cares, care especially from someone like for someone that comes from a family that has caused him so much misery between fred and george who i'm sure could not have like you know been perfect students in potions right. let's be real and then you have ron who is best friends with harry also known as you know snape's arch enemy as far as teacher and students are concerned i have been chastised on this podcast before for halfway defending Snape on some things. <laughs> halfway. But I, I, it just stuck out to me here. It's like, no, he has his moments. This is a Gryffindor. This is a Weasley, like you said. And he cares. Mm-hmm. Uh, that shouldn't be shuffled to the side. That should be noted. Yep. So, noted. <laughs> um, but yeah, Lockhart makes an appearance. But what McGonagall says right before Lockhart makes an appearance is she starts out saying... Dumbledore always said, and that's when Lockhart burst in. And all I want to know is what the second half of that sentence was. What did Dumbledore always say? Lockhart ruins things again. Something wise and profound and awesome. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Probably. Maybe he always said that the answer to the Chamber of Secrets is hidden here. I don't know. We'll never I've always out. had a feeling that it's here. <laughs> Pretty sure it's here. But Lockhart ruins things again. Yep. Uh, but hilariously. He, he comes in. <laughs> what did I miss? <laughs> what did I miss? Everything's good, right? Uh, they all turn to him, and every one of the heads of houses, they all take their shots. Mm-hmm. All four of them. Yep. And they're just like, lucky that you're here. We were just talking about how you, you are our savior. You, Gilderoy Lockhart. 
And Snape, I think, just relishes this the most out of them. I mean, it's hard to tell if it's Snape or McGonagall. Because, like, Snape would probably take shots at him every day of the week. But I feel like McGonagall would hold her tongue and be like, all right, Dumbledore hired him for a reason. Just she does on. hold her tongue, but she also doesn't hold her tongue. I mean... It's a very <laughs> passive-aggressive <laughs> comment. And it's, and I like this, again, you're watching all of this through the eyes of Harry and Ron, who mm-hmm. are in a closet. But this is a different view of all of your teachers. Yeah. Like, this is not them teaching a class. This is not them teaching you a lesson. This is them being peers for yeah. a second. It's not them being, like, teacher-student. This is them being peers and colleagues and them having their own drama going on. And it's a fascinating look at it. And then all of the teachers just going, like, so... What you gonna do? <laughs> like, you're the guy, right? You're our guy. You're the best of us. Please. <laughs> well, and I love that after he's like, oh, yep, okay, I'll work on that, that McGonagall's like, great, we got rid of him. Now we can do real work. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's just, it's so funny to me that they all turn and they're like, well, you got this, right? Right? Because at this point, like, none of them believe in his abilities as we can see they're all very skeptical yeah they're all very skeptical and so i kind of found it hilarious reading it and watching all of them go all right you handle it go ahead bro well i feel like the four of them have probably again more teacher conversations amongst themselves they've probably heard what happens in his classroom because students talk and students Mm -hmm. talk in other classrooms and i'm sure they've heard thousand percent i'm sure they've heard i'm i'm sure they've wandered by his classroom when pixies got loose i'm sure they've and i'm sure they just know that some of his stories and some of his solutions quote unquote to problems are completely ridiculous okay and i don't think snape will ever forgive him for telling students that they should ask him how to make a love potion Yep. Or Flitwick with the, the enchanting <laughs> bit and Flitwick just putting his head in his hands, just going like, what are you doing to me? Um, yeah, all of that. Just all of it. They saw what he did with Harry and Quidditch. They saw how he handled that. Um, well, and I feel like especially without Dumbledore there, like because I feel like there's a lot more decorum even with the professors when Dumbledore's around. And so not having him there and having them all be like, yeah, go ahead and handle it. You, you go do it. Well, you even after, it. like, the writing on the wall and Mrs. Norris and them getting ushered into his office, mm-hmm. and then it's Dumbledore, McGonagall, Snape, and Lockhart. And they're trying to figure this thing out, and you can just tell, like, three of them are actually taking this seriously. Mm-hmm. And one is just firing off what I'm pretty sure is absolute nonsense. Which they can... And again, and this goes to my next question here. What is Lockhart thinking? Because it's like, have you bought into, uh, this, is, this isn't spoilers because this is in the chapter. You've bought into your own lie at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you're in that room with those three, and I get Lockhart might be, I don't know that he was, he might have been taught by McGonagall. He probably was taught by McGonagall, right? I would think so. I would think so. And Dumbledore was obviously there. Yeah. Uh, Snape, not. Snape probably wasn't. But... You have those three people, and I get you've gone all over the world and done your thing, and you might forget like how good McGonagall was at something. There's no forgetting how good Dumbledore. He's everywhere. I mean, He's the yeah. predominant wizard in the world today. Mm-hmm. 
what what do you think spouting like he's gonna be like you're right that gibberish spell that you just said that's the answer yeah you got me <laughs> it's uh, probably his harry's fault that he lost all the bones in his arm you moved the wrong way right right it's like who are you fooling yeah well and the thing that i find interesting is that lockhart walks into the teacher's lounge and is like well what did i miss instead of being like all right maybe it's time now we're gonna vote. <laughs> yeah, well, and then to that point, again, what are you expecting here? Like, mm-hmm. are you just expecting to have every major professor look to you and say, This is your thing? You bolt. Isn't that going to hurt your reputation when that gets out? Well, and to that point, wouldn't you think that as soon as the Chamber of Secrets opened, or it was alluded to that it was opened, like, as soon as that attack on Mrs. Norris happened, wouldn't you think, as Lockhart, knowing what we find out later in the chapter, wouldn't you think at that point he would be like, wow, got called away on some super intense, scary business, gotta get out of here so that you're not put in this situation? You'd think, unless you've literally bought into your own your own mystique. True. But you have, like... None of the other heads of houses, and Dumbledore himself, from what we've seen so far, they're all obviously very skilled at what they do. None of them speak of it. <laughs> like, not one of the five of them ever go like, you know, I'm really good at potions. I am really good at making, like, all of these. Hey, I'm good with that Whomping Willow. I'm good with this, the Mandrake thing. That was all me. Yeah. Like, and so on and so on and so on. None of them ever... Dumbledore, do you ever hear him saying, like, yeah, seven uses for dragon's blood? Me! <laughs> or, now he might go around. Dumbledore's like, I have a great sock collection. Right, now, <laughs> yeah, I can't see him doing that, though. I can't see him doing that. I, you know that one time that I bowled 300 because 10 pin bowling's my thing? Yep. <laughs> I can't see him doing that, because that's the thing he would brag about, but... Anyway. Uh, <laughs> we got on a fun sidetrack. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so I I just don't know what he's expecting. But obviously, things kind of get to the point of Harry and Ron being locked up in their uh, tower. And they're like, we can't just sit around. We have to do something. Maybe we can save Ginny, whatever, what have you. So, again, they sneak out. And I guess the fat lady's like, whatever, I'm done. So (laughs) they sneak out and they go to Lockhart's office. And uh, they find him in a hurry uh, to pack uh, all of his portraits, which I'm assuming takes a good long time. At least an hour. Yeah, that's that's a long <laughs> time to pack up all of that stuff. Uh, but packing all of his stuff together, and they find out, essentially, after a good back and forth, he's a fraud. Mm. He hasn't done any of the things. Shocker! Yeah. Um, he hasn't done any of the things that he's written about. He's taken them from other witches and wizards that have actually accomplished those things and then blames vanity because he's like, who wants to read about, you know, some witch with a boil on her face or some wizard with a hunchback? No one cares. Uh, but look at me, Charming Smile Award, five times. <laughs> That's who they want to see on the cover of a book. It's like, okay, dude, really? Um, and then I love the quotes. Uh, <laughs> Books can be misleading from Lockhart. And then uh, Harry, I believe, says, you wrote them. (laughs) 
And that is Lockhart in a <laughs> nutshell right there. I do want to say, though, I think it shows you some real, like, layers of depth to the characters leading into the scene because you have Ron who is so desperate to save his sister. And I mean, yeah. what brother wouldn't be, sure. but like he is so desperate that he goes to Lockhart and decides to trust him, not only with this information, but trust him enough that he thinks he can save his sister. I mean, all through this whole book, Ron and Harry have both been saying like, he's a fraud. He's a fake. Can you really believe that? And for him to pretty much do this like 180. I also don't know that they picked up on the sarcasm of the teachers while hiding in the closet of like, you're our guy, right? <laughs> but like for, I mean, they already went through all of the different challenges to get to the Sorcerer's Stone. They've beaten a mountain troll. They've been through the urban forest. They Twice. flew a flying car. <laughs> yeah. Like, after yeah. all of the stuff that they've already done, yep. that when it comes to saving his own sister, he actually goes and trusts this person that he finds to be the most unreliable nitwit and says, like, you're going to save my sister. Please help us. I'm thinking about it now. We're giving him a lot of credit for doing the responsible right thing of, like, they're trying to go to teachers. Yeah. They're trying to do the responsible thing instead of doing the rash thing, which is going straight to where you probably think it is mm -hmm. and go down there yourselves they're trying they actually made a concerted effort this time <laughs> they just kind of picked the wrong person to go they to picked the, they had the right person and then for whatever reason they balked on it and went to the i still would have gone to mcgonagall i but... still would have gone to mcgonagall you're right <laughs> anyway so but lockhart does say of of all of the the lies and uh deception in his books he is good at one thing and that is memory charms. He is particularly talented at those. So uh, that's where his raping claw comes in. <laughs> this is like, I might not be good at X, Y, and Z, but this. Yep. We all got to have one thing. We're hey, I, you know, it's, it's, it's better than nothing. So he's got that. And he tries to charm them both. But Harry's a little quicker on the draw, um, which is part of his, I guess, dueling background uh, with the dueling club. And he learned something from that dueling club, and he gives credit to Snape for it. He actually credits Snape. I know. And like, the thing that I love about it is through the first and second book, like, Harry's hatred of Snape almost rivals, like, the hatred of Voldemort, because he doesn't truly know Voldemort because right. of how he was brought Snape's up. Snape's giving him the crap on a daily basis. Yeah. yeah. And so for him to sit there and say, like, well, maybe you should have had Professor Snape teach us that charm. Like, for him to, like, say, like, heck yeah, he taught me something cool. I know, right? Instead of just saying, like, you know, maybe you shouldn't have had that taught in Dueling Club. He gives all of the credit to this teacher. It's a really cool moment, actually. And then, um, and then they go to Myrtle's bathroom, the th uh, three of them. And they stun Myrtle. They're like, Myrtle, how did you die? And she's like, somebody cares. Girl has been waiting 50 years to <laughs> tell this story. <laughs> it's like somebody finally <laughs> has come to me for this. Um, so she goes through the whole story about uh, the bathroom and a boy coming in and muttering something funny that didn't sound right. And then her opening up the door and seeing the big eyes. 
<laughs> and then she goes into a story about how Olive Hornby was making fun of her glasses, which is why she was in there in the first place. <laughs> and part of the reason for her being a ghost is to have haunted Olive Hornby. She wanted to specifically haunt her. Yep. Which is great until she graduates and leaves and, and you're, then stuck you're stuck in a stuck bathroom. There for the rest of eternity. Yeah, I didn't really... In a, in a bathroom. But her explanation of dying was interesting. It was like seeing the eyes, and falling back, and then almost falling back into your body, except mm -hmm. you know, it was a very interesting like description of yeah. how she felt dying was, which, I don't know, I just found it kind of interesting. But and Harry finds a faucet that Myrtle says has never worked. Which again, somewhere <laughs> along the line... Wouldn't someone have looked into that? I mean, you would think, or wouldn't someone have tried to put some type of spell or enchantment? Like, I don't think that wizards have plumbers. They probably just have a spell that acts as a plumber. So wouldn't you think they would try to do some type of spell, and when it doesn't work, they'd look a little more closely at the faucet and be like, huh, this is mighty suspicious that there's a snake on the side of the faucet that doesn't work, and there's a thing called a chamber of secrets that no one can find an entrance to also what a weird spot if you're salazar slytherin why did you essentially make a water slide of pipes to get down to your secret lair you didn't think about like you gotta make it fun a staircase. <laughs> I just there is no space in my brain can't you just imagine salazar create... slytherin just going <laughs> like all the way we down. talked about this in the last episode that I have a very overactive imagination, but that overactive imagination cannot put Salazar Slytherin down a water slide of pipes. It, I just can't do it. I can't find it. <laughs> I love I love that thought personally. <laughs> I'm all for it. But uh, yeah, so they land in this place and they stumble upon this like massive snakeskin. They're like, oh my gosh, this has to be huge. They first think it is the actual monster, but anyway, uh, they get in this kerfuffle of sorts, and Lockhart ends up with Ron's wand, which, wah, if, wah, wah. Yeah. <laughs> if you remember way back when, <laughs> that uh, Whomping Willow kind of did a number on it. Uh, so uh, he picks up the wand. He's about to do the memory charm, which backfires and almost takes down the entire system. So uh, it's an interesting place to kind of leave it with Harry going up to this like circular door with big serpents. And he's like, well, if it worked on the faucet upstairs, it probably works here. Um, and then JK does JK things and leave you on a massive cliffhanger of where you want to just keep flipping and reading. <laughs> Uh, she does it often, um, but, you know, that's why we read them. So we're going really, really long on the non-spoilers, and we have a bunch to talk about in the spoilers <laughs> section. So I'll probably end it right here, and we'll get to all the spoilers, including Julie hearing my tinfoil hat for the yes. first time. Amazing! This is just like magic! All right, so we hope you enjoyed the Lockhart break, because Lockhart plays a big role in this chapter. So do you think, like... Tom Riddle discovering all of this for the first time. Because he's got to do like major research on this, right? He's got to like dig into this and he's really working hard. Is that like a, what was he, six, 15? He was 15 when this yeah. all happened. 15 year old kid doing this kind of study and research to find what the Chamber of Secrets even is. 
Slytherin to figure out, oh my gosh, I'm connected to this guy somehow. And then figure out where the entrance may or may not be. That's a lot that he's got to take on. And then he finds out like, really? It's in a bathroom and I have to open it with <laughs> like sink? A sink. Like what? <laughs> like really? He's, he could either be, or that could be where he gets his idea for plain horcruxes. Hide in plain sight. True. It could just be his entire, you know, we talked last chapter about him getting the idea to trick Hagrid in book one from way back when. Maybe this was his like, maybe I should hide some horcruxes in plain sight. And that way people will never even pick him up. Could it also be, though, that since um, parcel tongues aren't overly common in the Whispering World, mm -hmm. that maybe the Basilisk spoke to Tom Riddle and he was just a little bit quicker on the uptake and realized that he was talking to a snake. It's true. You'd and have so to... if the Basilisk almost led him... So the other part of this is, like, this Basilisk would have to be... If Slytherin put it there himself, he founded Hogwarts roughly, quote-unquote, a thousand years ago. We don't get an exact date. It's just roughly. Mm -hmm. So, and we learned that the Basilisk has a hundreds, quote-unquote, years of life. Well, there's a big difference from, like, two, three, four hundred years and a thousand. So, like, is this... Could it be a different basilisk? Or is it because they're not necessarily overly common wizarding world that they're looking at it as, well, we know that they live hundreds of years. Question mark, sort of. <laughs> yeah. We don't really know when one died. So could it be something similar to that? I don't know. There's just a lot of weird random questions about it. Yeah. Like, how did Tom Riddle figure all this out? I was 15. I would take a whole book on that because I feel like it would be fascinating. Mm -hmm. Or his time at Hogwarts, I think, would be a fascinating prequel. Oh, yes. Because I think it would be just interesting to see. And this is something that I always forget. And it kind of clicked into place on this read that Moaning Myrtle, Hagrid, Rubius Hagrid, and Tom Riddle all attended Hogwarts at the same time. Different years. <laughs> Different years, but still. But still, that's completely, like, mind-blowing because you never, and I think one of the things that when they talk about how no one asked Myrtle how she died mm -hmm. and no one really thought to talk to Myrtle is, like, when you think about a ghost, you don't think, like, oh, this ghost is probably a couple decades old. Like, think about all of the other ghosts in the castle. Centuries. Some of like, them were legit Nick, centuries. Friar, Bloody Baron, like, yep. You don't, other than, like, maybe Peeves, you don't think any of them are in the past century, let alone the past couple of decades. And so... Even the Grey Lady. Yeah. Like, yeah, long time. Like, <laughs> long, long, long time. Um, and so, when you think about the fact that a ghost and Voldemort and Hagrid were all there at the same time... As students. As students, not... One's a teacher, or one popped in because their cousin was there, whatever. Riddle was in his fifth year. Hagrid was in his third. I don't know what your Myrtle was. I don't even know if I say. But she obviously was attending Hogwarts at that time. Yeah. So, um, and obviously Riddle knows of them both because he knew enough about Hagrid to frame him. 
Mm-hmm. And he knew enough about Myrtle that she was Muggleborn and a target. So he knows. He knows people. Yeah. People are, are literally his like specialty. He knows how to play them. He knows how to manipulate them. I wonder what like Hagrid and Myrtle were like. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think when you look at it, you think of Hagrid as being almost like relatively recently at Hogwarts. You don't think of Hagrid as... Being that old? Being that old. Like, you think of him as, you know, the same age as Lillian, James Potter, Molly, and Arthur. Like, you don't think of Hagrid as being, you know, 60 years old. He's like 60 or 70. Because I think... uh, Well, he's probably late 60s. Because I think Riddle dies when he's like 71. I think Molly brought that up last episode. Like, he dies when he's 71. That Hagrid's old. Yeah, <laughs> like, and Hagrid's I feel not a like young that's man. Not something that I ever thought of. I don't know if his giant being... blood has anything to like I mess mean, that with would be aging. My assumption. His personality comes off as a much younger individual. Yeah, like I would have said, like forties, maybe fifties, sure. and then all of a sudden you're like fifty years ago. Fifty years ago. <laughs> fifty years ago, you were thirteen. And like, it seems even yeah. more bizarre when you think about the fact that. When you look at Hagrid in book one, when he's talking about Voldemort, and then you realize that not only did he go to Hogwarts at the exact same time, but like they knew each other. Not even they had conversations. Like, yeah, I don't know. Now we're seeing that conversation happen through a diary, so yeah. maybe Riddle's playing with that memory a bit. Still, you'd have to believe they at least had one conversation. Yeah, yeah, and so. It seems so weird to me that, like, with how afraid of even saying Voldemort's name Hagrid was. Voldemort. Just saying the yeah. Voldemort. Not even Tom Riddle. And, I mean, we get into it later that not a ton of people know the correlation between You'd think Hagrid Tom. would have to, well, And you? that's the thing is you would think that when he was there, at the same time, kind of knew. But then again, when Tom Riddle was at Hogwarts, he was the perfect... And, I mean, he's he's applying for that job as a Defense Against the Arts teacher as Tom Riddle, right? He's mm-hmm. not, hey, I'm Lord Voldemort, here to work for you. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's... You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like... Hey, Tom, how are you doing? How have you been since you graduated kind of thing? You know, yeah. people in the hallway. It's it's different. Mm-hmm. And like when you actually like start putting these things together, it's like, oh, I never really. Well, and it kind of makes you wonder a little bit, like how much did Hagrid realize that Tom Riddle and Voldemort were the same person? Because in later books, like Dumbledore talks about how, you know, a lot of people don't know that they're the same person. And he's changed his looks, obviously. Yeah. He doesn't look the he same. He changed his looks. He very clearly changed his name. But how many people actually know that connection when most of the Death Eaters don't even know that he's Tom Riddle? I, uh, there, Yeah. There's probably some he went to school with. Like, his inner circle he probably went to school with. Wow, we got a side <laughs> tangent about that. That's fine. <laughs> so... um. Speaking of the heir of Slytherin himself, Tom Riddle, uh, we have a little bit of, uh, we've talked in the past about house overlap and how 
Slytherins and Ravenclaws has some similarities. And actually, Gryffindors and Slytherins have some similarities, too, whether you like to believe it or not. And Hufflepuffs are kind of on their own. That's fine. <laughs> That's fine. But no, I mean, you can have traits of yeah. any of the houses. Uh, you know, I uh, kind of identify as more of a Ravenclaw, but I have a lot of Hufflepuff in me. I know that. Um, if I, We've mentioned the quiz on BuzzFeed before, but there's a quiz where you can, like, measure out which percentage of each house mm-hmm. you are. And my percentage usually comes down to like, you know, 40% Ravenclaw, like 30 something percent Hufflepuff, 20% Griffin, and then like 1% <laughs> like Slytherin. <laughs> but like it, you can have traits yeah. of multiple houses and no houses combined to one thing. Anyway, Lockhart, you kind of see both his Slytherin aspect and his Ravenclaw aspect in the same chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, as bumbling as he comes across, he's not. He's actually a very smart individual. He's a smart individual to uh, know the memory charms like he does and master that particular form of magic. But also, as much as a scumbag he is for it, he's brilliant in this con that he runs. Yeah. Like, most con men are brilliant because they get away with said con. Well, and he realized that, you know, all of these people have these great, amazing stories of things that they accomplished... Yep. But are people going to be as fascinated by, you know, average Joe saving the town from a werewolf as they would this charming, dashing young man that they'd also like to look at? Which also bleeds into the Slytherin aspect Mm -hmm. of ambition and wanting to make more of yourself than what's actually there and this kind of conniving way of doing it and, and you're cunning. To, mm-hmm. to, I mean, literally, he's the darn definition near, of <laughs> like, he's darn near 50-50. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think he's got a sliver of Hufflepuff in him whatsoever. <laughs> he does have a little bravery from Gryffindor, though. A little like, bit. Think about how brave you would bit. have to be to do this memory charm on someone that did this, like, amazing feat. Because if that goes wrong and they still remember it, not only, sure. like... Do they now have this, like, story of you messing up, but, bro, you're going to Azkaban. Sorry. So, yeah. like, there has to be at least that little sliver of bravery to, like, go forth and yeah. actually attempt this. I think he would have the bravery if it was one teacher in that teacher's lounge mm-hmm. instead of everyone. Yeah. I think he would have had the bravery or, you know, the guts to be like, I can take you. In, in this one form of magic, I can take you. All of them, he has the wisdom to be like, I can't do that. But, you know, uh, I think he also has a, a negative characteristic of Gryffindor, but the arrogance about him to be like, I am really confident that I can do this. And I can do it to whoever I want, no matter how, quote unquote, talented they are. And it's a little bit arrogant of them. And it's a little bit of a confidence thing, which Gryffindor kind of boasts, too. Which I think also, we didn't really touch on this earlier, but when he's down in the chamber with Harry and Ron and they see the giant snake skin and he's like, well, I'm going to tell him I was too late to save the girl and that you guys were just driven mad by the sight of her dead mangled body, but we're going to go. And all I think of when I read that is, what exactly were you going to tell them? You told them that you know where it is, you know how to defeat the monster, and instead you come back and you're like, 
Well, they went mad. And I couldn't save anyone. I'm going to leave now. <laughs> like, there's no book out of that. You're not creating your next book and your next big hit by saying, I didn't solve any problems, but I brought two madmen up with me. You just go like, I tried my best and I fought but that valiantly. Hurts his brand. That hurts his whole brand and his yeah. whole image. And I mean, what yeah. are you expecting to do? Kind of like what you were saying that he could probably take on one professor, but if he's going up with the whole, you know, teacher's lounge, right? like, it's not like he can put a memory charm on all of them so that they right. can all go, well, Gilderoy, you fought so valiantly and you did help us. Like, what was his plan getting out of the chamber? And see, that's also part of his brilliance. I'm saying Lockhart is brilliant a lot and I really don't mean to, but... That's part of his brilliance, too, is that bumbling, doofus idiot that he almost presents himself as makes someone like Snape or McGonagall susceptible to what? The one thing he can do well because they don't <laughs> they don't believe he can. Because they don't think he can do it. They don't think well. he can do it. And then that's how he gets these great witches and wizards. They're like, who is this idiot? Bam. And then it's over. Yeah. You know, it's... That's part of his his game, which is freakishly brilliant. But mm. um, yeah, so that's Lockhart. Uh, anyway, we just talked a lot about houses. Um, you know what we have to talk about? Julie, what's your house? Gryffindor. Gryffindor. Anna will be so pleased. <laughs> Anna will be pleased. Uh, what makes you? What? Why do you think you've kind of fallen into that house? So when I started reading Harry Potter, like obviously, I immediately was drawn. To, like most people, I think before Harry Potter kind of hit the wider um, reach, mm -hmm. um, I immediately associated with Gryffindors. And um, I know that no one listening can see this right now, but I am a redhead. So immediately, you know, I was like, well, all redheads go to Gryffindor. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. And so, I mean, listen, when you're like a 12 year old reading Harry Potter, like that's kind of some of the stuff that, that's totally you fair. know, sticks with you. And as I kept reading, like I actually like related a lot to um, Hermione in school. I was very like bookish was the person who was like, what do you mean? I got a 99 and like, you know, did the extra credits. You got 105% instead of a hundred percent. And um, so I found it very relatable and then it was kind of weird because I remember as I got a little older when everyone started associating with different houses because I feel like when the books first came out, if you read the books, you were a Gryffindor. Like barely anyone was like, oh yeah, I'm a Hufflepuff, even though they don't really talk about Hufflepuffs until book four. It's a but, sham. Like, That's awful. <laughs> It's true though, like the Hufflepuff. Raven, are... Ravenclaw too. Ravenclaw yes. and Hufflepuff both kind of get shoved to the side of this Slytherin Gryffindor yeah. rivalry. And so I feel like you either you read the books and you were like, "Woo, I'm a Gryffindor," or you were like a little, you know, hipster about it, and you're like, "I'm a Slytherin. Slytherins are cool." <laughs> so I remember when everything like branched out and people started associating more with like Ravenclaws or Hufflepuffs. I like had almost like an identity crisis and was like, oh my God, was I just a Gryffindor? Because like, that was like the, the cool, cool thing. thing. And so I kind of like, you know, 
went through and I took like every single internet quiz I could find and like mm-hmm. reread through all of the characteristics and like no matter what quiz like there's always one quiz that switches the house for somebody and then like people like cry about it <laughs> you're laughing because you know it's true I Dan. know it's true you're right <laughs> and for me every single quiz always put me as Gryffindor when I took the quiz that said like your percentages like for me, like Gryffindor was like 65%. And I'm like, well, I mean, does the internet lie? <laughs> no, <laughs> never. Um, so like the fact that I was initially drawn to it and always felt this connection to it, whether it was superficial at first or like jumping on a band. Because you were a redhead? Because I was a redhead. <laughs> but like whether it was, you know, the superficial aspects at first, but like it was something that kind of became part of my identity not to sound you know kitschy or anything but it turned into like once people started like almost because there was that it is phase. kind of like a badge of like fandom yeah and like yeah. there was that phase where all harry potter fans like if someone said they were a gryffindor like people would be like oh yeah you're a gryffindor because that's where harry potter was and it's like no like i'm a gryffindor because i feel like i'm a gryffindor and that like if the sorting hat was real if I was told any other house, like, I'd be upset about it. And not just because, you know, Gryffindor is the first house that you really know about. <laughs> and, um, I, I do feel like there is a, there is a point to that, like, coolness factor of people don't want to be, like, a Hufflepuff. Because Hufflepuff has a stigma. For whatever reason, Hufflepuff has a stigma, even though... And then people want to be a Hufflepuff because it has that stigma. But, I mean, there's a lot, like, JK has come out herself as being like, everybody should want to be a Hufflepuff. Mm-hmm. Like, it's objectively, like, on paper, like, the best house. Yes. <laughs> like, it, it checks every box that you need. <laughs> but just no one likes it because, whatever, its colors are yellow or it's... Well, they uh, seem to always be in the Hufflepuff background in every single book like even in the books where there's more focus on Hufflepuff I feel like it's just the like I needed a random character to fill this in Hufflepuff yeah it's really only like the the, you know the Cedric Diggory parts of Goblet of Fire and then after that these Fantastic Beasts movies were supposed to be literally they branded it as quote unquote the rise of Hufflepuff Mm -hmm. because Newt Scamander is a Hufflepuff the rise of Hufflepuff has its moment. Yes. And then they changed Newt's story into being a Grindelwald Dumbledore story. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you, no, you're taking it away. <laughs> but I feel like that's when the rise of Hufflepuffs did actually happen in the fandom. Because I feel like right when they were like, Newt's commander, Hufflepuff, Hufflepuff, is when like everyone like came out of their Hufflepuff closet and was like, I am a Hufflepuff. You should be proud to be a Hufflepuff. Yes. Say it proudly. Anyway, <laughs> a couple other things we wanted to get to. Speaking of uh, Gryffindors and bravery and all of that kind of thing, I did have a, a comment. We did a lot about monsters in the last chapter, in this chapter. We had Aragog and his uh, Acromantula. Giant spider. Giant spider. He's a really big spider <laughs> with a really big family. Yeah. So we had that in the last chapter. We, we get more information uh, and we see the snakeskin of the basilisk itself. So my question to you then is, spiders or snakes? Can I say neither? (laughs) 
I love that I just spend, you know, however many minutes saying that I'm a Gryffindor who are known for being brave. And then you ask spider or snake and I'm like, out the door. Thank you. Uh, uh, I think I like snakes more. I, I can get behind snakes more. Yeah. Well, and I think at least with the snake, like, you can see it because they're kind of big. <laughs> Spiders just kind of sneak up on you. They can both be deadly. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just have... I, I lean snakes more than I mean, spiders. If I was going, like, if we were going in Harry Potter context, I would go up against a basilisk over a giant. Oh man, I don't know. Now, see, that makes me. I think the fact that it can speak actually worries me more about the spider. And the basilisk, just the fact that it can look at you, like, not even the fangs itself is what you have to worry about. It's the look. Yeah. You know that worries me. If we're going specifically, like. Aragog versus this basilisk. Yeah. They're both super deadly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're running long, but that's okay. I have one more question uh, for Julie since this is her first time on. Have any thoughts? We always give like uh, some of our guests a rebuttal section of sorts. Uh, if you've listened to the episodes or you wanted to bring back something from one of the chapters that uh, has been on before. So I'm actually going way back, Dan. Okay. Back to the beginning. Oh, Book one, chapter one. Wow. Okay, way so, back. Way, yeah, way, way back. Way back. Actually, when you started this podcast, it got me to reread the books. Nice. All over again. Um, I haven't read them in longer than I care to admit. Fair. Um, and so I was like, you know what? I'm going to reread it. And after taking essentially a break from reading them, you don't read them the same way. Like yeah. when you're reading them back to back to back or you're reading them because the next new book came out, like you pretty much remember everything from that last book. You remember the little details or especially when the movies were coming out, you remembered like what they didn't put in the movies that you're mad about. <laughs> right. And so rereading that first chapter about the Dursleys and going about their day. And, you know, when you reread it after you've read the series, you're like, God, the Dursleys are just awful people. They are the worst. So you reread that first chapter and you're like, yeah, he is a jerk. Absolutely. But when you take that break and you actually read it and you think about it, it is so relatable. Like who hasn't seen somebody dressed weird and been like, God, what is this new fashion? Or seen someone saying something weird or you know that your spouse or significant other's family is estranged and then you hear the name and you're like, should I tell them about it? Will it make them upset? Mm -hmm. And I think it's so relatable and is a credit to J.K. Rowling. Well, she sells well, you yeah. on like the most normal. Yeah, and they are like when you think about it and you go through like it says that he picks out his most boring tie for work. But like who gets ready for work and is like, I'm going to pick my jazziest outfit <laughs> today. Like, no, you're like, okay, I'm going to work. Let's grab my work clothes. Till you meet the characters from the wizarding side of the world, you're just like, okay, like they're normal people, like normal problems, whatevs. And then you meet McGonagall who is sitting there saying they're horrible people. They're awful people. And you're like, oh, are they awful people? Yeah, maybe they are awful people. And then it kind of changes your perspective of them. Not trying to say that the Dursleys are justified in putting Harry under the stairs or anything like that. It's an important qualifier. <laughs> I should make sure that that is 
Borderline said, to blunt child abuse. Yes. <laughs> Not condoning any of their child abuse towards Harry. Their aversion to magic yeah. is what you're referring to. Yes. And I think an interesting point that we can get into or not, but that the Dursleys kind of mirror J.K. Rowling a bit. Because Ooh. when the books came out, Everyone's like, she's such a great person. These books are so inclusive. They preach love and inclusivity and togetherness. And then you get to some of her more recent comments in the media about transgender. Mm -hmm. And um, now all of a sudden you kind of look back and you're like, no, I love what you did for my childhood. And like you did, like you brought me this great series that was so like, instrumental in growing up and was such a big part from like a media perspective and a I maturity mean, Potter, yeah. so like you're saying if i'm getting you right you're saying like the first chapter of the dursleys uh you just getting to know them and just getting that sense of them being like whoa these people are kind of weird they're not they're different and i i don't i'm not cool with that kind of difference but whatever you know Going about my day. And the second chapter, you find out a little bit more of what they're doing to Harry on a daily basis. And and then you're like, oh, maybe McGonagall was right. And these people aren't like the maybe best. Maybe JK was projecting a little bit. That's a fair thought. It's uh, I do find it very hard to kind of correlate everything you just said. Like the, the books for me are a lot about love is obviously the overwhelming theme mother's love specifically, but it's like Neville is an outcast. Luna is an outcast. Harry himself feels as though he's an outcast at multiple points in the series. The book also to me is like, just cause you're odd or just cause you're different. Uh, doesn't mean you're not worthwhile or you can't be a hero. Mm -hmm. uh, Neville you can't goes, make a difference. You can't change the world. Like, right. Neville yeah. goes from being a misfit who can't do anything right, and he ends up being a hero at the end of it. That's kind of what the book is, and that kind of... Contradicts. Yeah, the idea that someone different from you can still be someone great, as mm -hmm. someone good, and someone that you can be friends with, or someone that you can agree with, or whatever, contradicts some of what she's saying. It's like, just because you don't understand what someone else is going through or what someone else is thinking doesn't necessarily mean they're a bad person. Mm -hmm. Just means they're different from you, and that's okay. Because that's what you told me in the Harry Potter books. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I get what you're saying. It's yeah. a little like, what? But yeah, going back to um, the, the Dursley thing, it's like the first several chapters are like, they might start out up top here and this like, yeah, that's an understandable take. And then it just slowly... Yeah, and then you're like, kid under the stairs is a bedroom. Okay, I, I can't relate to that one. But... And then it just gets worse and worse, <laughs> yeah. and worse and worse. And you're like, oh my, this yeah. is a terrible living arrangement. They're not great. No, they're not. They're not, they're not awesome. Uh, <laughs> any other uh, kind of thoughts or things that you had? I would say the other thing too is going back more recently, and we're not going to go all the way back this time, but that was fun to uh, relive. <laughs> <laughs> but just going back a few chapters ago, talking about like when Dumbledore was told he's removed from the board of governors and um, 
when everyone's like, what? Dumbledore's leaving? And Dumbledore's listen, like, listen, if the board sees it fit. And I think that says a lot about Dumbledore. Like, Dumbledore always has a lot going on in his head. He knows how everything's playing out. He's very, like, cool, calm, collected, Mm -hmm. like, 99.999% of the time. Like, he's this great, powerful wizard, and he's like, yeah, I know that Lucius just blackmailed the other 11 governors. He's just like, well, all right. I talked a lot about how that scene, that whole Hagrid's Hut scene, was very Dumbledore to me. Like, Mm -hmm. it's a very Dumbledore-type scene that you see throughout the books of him just being... I think I said stern, but calm. Mm -hmm. Like he never raises his voice. He never like yells and he never has, he never feels like he has to yell to get his point across, but he very clearly gets his point across. (laughs) He's like, I am not happy with this, but I'll accept it. It takes a very special kind of human being to have that kind of gravitas to him Mm -hmm. that can, you know, raise his voice without actually raising his voice. Well, and I feel like, Dumbledore probably saw this coming from a mile away. Like, you know when, you know, what is that, four students are petrified and a ghost? Like... And he lived through it the first time when Dippet was, like, losing his mind over, like, oh my gosh, this this school's gonna close, what am I gonna do, blah, 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 blah. And so he had to have known this was gonna happen, especially knowing that Malfoy is on the Board of Governors. He knew that there was going to be some vote to get him removed, I think it's, uh, uh, what's the Teddy Roosevelt line? Speak softly and carry a big stick. Yep. That is Dumbledore to a T. Exactly. (laughs) This is, this is also though, this is another tangent, uh, but that's also why Fudge fears him so much later Mm -hmm. is because that line, that loyalty line, I guarantee you Fudge knew exactly what he meant by that. A thousand percent. Like it was not lost on Fudge. I think Dumbledore has his ways of getting information. Mm-hmm. People, things, creatures are all loyal to him and they give him information and they carry out his wishes or his orders, even though if he's not actually in the room. Whether they know it or not. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, uh, hope you've enjoyed all of this discussion. Uh, we've covered quite a bit. So Uh, This is Julie's second episode. We're hoping to have you on so much more, especially as we enter Prisoner of Azkaban. I know it's one of your favorite books. I feel like it's one of lots of people's favorite (laughs) books. Uh, I know it's one of Anna's. It'll be a lot of fun. So uh, we hope you've enjoyed listening. Again, uh, check us out on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Hogwarts of Pod. You can check me out at Daniel underscore Allen 44 on both Twitter and Instagram. Do you want to toss out your dog's Instagram? We were talking about it. I always toss out my dog's Instagram. You can follow my adorable little golden doodle at the.marvelous underscore miss.maple on Instagram. There you go. There you have it. (laughs) So for Julie, I'm Dan. Thank you for listening to Hogwarts, a podcast. If you like what you've heard, please click the subscribe button on your preferred podcasting app and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Hogwarts a Pod.